Okay, we carry on in our study through Genesis this morning. Let's just bow our hearts just one more time and just commit this uh, time of study into the Lord's hands, shall we? Father, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, just thank you for the way it has transformed us already. Um, and Lord, we know that it will do yet more in chipping away those things of this world and Lord, causing to blossom and flourish the things of you. Um, Father, we just pray now as we just turn to your word that you just give us eyes that can see spiritual things and Lord, ears that will hear, that we would grow together this morning in knowledge and grace. Lord, feed us, Lord, with this manner um, sufficient for this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are coming rapidly towards the end of the, the book of Genesis. I mean, it, it is such an incredible book. It lays the foundation for, for everything that we see in Scripture um, and for many of the things in life, really. Um, we've come now as far as this portion looking at the life of Joseph. Um, but we get a little bit of a tangent because we saw the introduction into Joseph's life last time. Um, but now we're going to get this twist as we go into chapter 38. And on the surface, it does kind of seem a bit unrelated. Um, but if you remember, the theme that we've kind of seen coming out uh, with the, the situation at Shechem, and even in the last chapter we were looking, uh, and looking at the the chapter before that, the life of Esau, chapter 36, uh, we saw the problem that occurred with this intermarrying with Esau into and his wives and, and the, the, the inhabitants of the land of Canaan uh, and the problems that came as a result of that. And we talked about the whole thing that really springboards from Genesis chapter 6 and we'll, we'll see that developed further uh, as we go on. And so on one hand we've got this disobedience, intermarrying with the world and then in stark contrast to that we have Joseph, this model of, of purity. Um, someone who keeps himself from the things of the world. So there is a, a very clear uh, correlation between these chapters and a number of other levels too. So let's just jump into chapter 38 uh, and we look and see. Uh, the first thing we're told, it came to pass at that time. Now, that is the, it's a statement really of the, what's going on. We think this is occurring whilst Joseph now has been taken down to Egypt um, this is something that's happening in uh, the land. We've already said that, or I said last time, that Jacob um, probably uh, still very melancholy because of the whole situation, thinking that Joseph's dead. The atmosphere in the family, a uh, very, very bleak uh, kind of situation. Judah seemingly had enough of it, and so he wants to get out. You know, sadly, we see a lot of young people today deciding they want to leave home. Uh, and go off and uh, try and find their own way in the world. Well, Judah, uh, possibly only around about 20 years old at this time. We know Joseph was 17. Uh, Judah would have been a little bit older, but not much older. Um, so somewhere in the region of about a 20-year-old young man. At that, that age in life, you know everything, don't you? Uh, and, uh, of course, Judah is taking this step now. He goes down, we're told, to this place, turned into this certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. Now, this individual becomes a good friend of Judas, which on the surface we think, okay, that's fine, until we start to look at this in a little bit more detail, because Adullam was one of the chief cities of Canaan. Uh, we actually find that it's mentioned five times in the Old Testament, but it's always mentioned along with the other principal cities of the land. This was one of those dens of iniquity, in a sense, that we read about in Canaan, and this is where 
when Israel come out of Egypt, they come back into the promised land under Joshua. Joshua actually smites 31 kings, and this is one of the kings, Adullam, is one of the, the places, one of the kings that he destroys uh, in this area. Um, and so this individual part of this group, certainly one of these um, remnant of these giant tribes that were inhabiting Canaan, and Jacob makes this individual his friend. Now, that's the first part of the problem here. Jacob, uh, uh, so Judah is already being softened um, by the lure and the pull of the world at this point. Uh, and we read on, and Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Now, we're not told the, um, the daughter's name at this point, but we're told that he saw a daughter of a certain Canaanite, and the Canaanite's name was Shua, and he took her and went in unto her. And she conceived and bare a son and called his name Ur. Now, the sure we're not sure. It could be, as possibly, the son of Abraham and Keturah. So Abraham, after the death of Sarah, marries or takes Keturah as his concubine, um, and they have a child named by the name of Shua, so the same name. It, it might be different, but it certainly chronologically it would just about fit into this kind of uh, equation. It would make um, Shua Jacob's uncle. Nevertheless, of course, we don't know the background of Keturah, but we do know that Shua um, had obviously married another Canaanite individual, and their offspring, this daughter, was clearly of Canaanite stock, as it were. And so, straight away, what we find is that Judah um, takes this, this Canaanite bride into marrying with the world, something that God had made very clear. And we've already seen that situation with Shechem, how God really, through that tragic situation, made it very clear they need to remain separate from the tribes of the land. We're told that they then have this child together named Ur. And, I mean, this is an Ur, is an error uh, on Judah's part. Uh, we read, and she conceived again and bare a son, and she called his name Ornan. And then we have a third child come along. She yet again conceived and bare a son and called his name uh, Sheila. And he was at Chizib when she bare him. So this is the, the setup for the rest of the chapter. So these three children that are born to Judah in the land of Canaan. And then we're told, obviously, a period of time passes. And the children uh, are growing. And we're told that Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. Now, that's kind of a hard thing to, to take, isn't it? That God would kill someone. Now, we, we're not given the background or the detail of why he was wicked, but we're simply told that God killed him. Now, what we're going to go on and see is that God here is protecting the offspring of Judah from this infiltration of this uh, genetic corruption that came through these angels who intermarried with the women of the earth and their offspring became the giants and so on that we read about in Genesis 6. They were, that was the reason the flood came and it was what we're told was in this area after the flood as well. These giant beings, this whole uh, satanic attempt to stop the Messiah being born. You have to understand the, the enormity of what we're seeing here. And the reason that God wanted to keep Israel separate and the reason that Satan was so determined to try and corrupt this line. God is not going to allow it. God's not going to allow Satan an attempt to destroy the plan. 
Of course, it's going to be through Judah that the Messiah will eventually come. But it's not going to be through these corrupt fallen angels' offsprings that we're going to see that. Interestingly, the Jewish Targum actually records Tamar, this daughter that he takes for his son, as actually a daughter of Shem. Now, that doesn't mean a physical daughter, but in terms of granddaughter or great-granddaughter and so on. Of course, in the Hebrew, there's no term for, for grandchild or granddaughter, grandson, and so on. Um, so a descendant of Shem. So this is of the same family line. This, this Tamar is of the same family line as Abraham and very distinct from the line of the Canaanites. And that's important because of what we're going to go on and see in a moment. And Judah said unto Ornan, this is after his brother has died, go into Ur has now died. And Judah says to his brother, Ornan, go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to thy brother. Now, it was the, the custom, and we find this uh, later codified in the book of Deuteronomy as part of the law. Uh, it becomes known as a, a Leverite's marriage, nothing to do with the, uh, the Levites, by the way. Um, I believe it, I think it's in the, the Greek or the Latin, uh, just is the idea of a, a brother uh, relationship. Um, it's a Leverite's marriage where if a brother died without any offspring, that the other remaining um, sons would then raise up offspring on behalf of the deceased brother that's the idea here now later as i say this becomes law and of course that's what judah now is saying to honor honor to go and do basically to go have a child with tamar and that this child will then be counted as your brother's son and of course his uh, his brother's inheritance would then pass to this son verse 9 says honor knew that his seed should not be his So he recognized that any offspring that would come from this relationship wouldn't be counted as his own, that this other child would then receive the inheritance that was his brother's and so on. And it came to pass that when he went in unto his brother's wife, that he spilled it on the ground, lest that he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore the Lord slew him also. Now, Bizarre kind of situation. But there's two things here. This word displeased is very interesting because there's a double offense that's taking place here. Firstly, Ornan shows no respect for his deceased brother, clearly not wanting to have this relationship, sexual relationship with what was his brother's wife to produce uh, offspring for her that would be counted as his brother's. And because of this, we see the pride in his own heart. Whenever you you kind of see pride, straight away you have to immediately link it with Satan. I mean, Paul tells us that, and Paul tells Timothy, that it was pride that caused Satan to sin. Satan is just full of pride. And whenever we see pride, you just see that satanic influence coming through. And it was just the pride in his own heart that he wasn't willing to raise up offspring for his brother he wanted things for himself he wanted the offspring for himself no doubt he wanted his own brother's inheritance himself didn't want to give it to someone else you see technically if his brother has no offspring everything his brother had would be passed to him but by raising up seed for his brother that then goes to the the seed of his brother not to him it makes sense if you're following so that's the first problem but the second is this offense where we have, once again, a Canaanite man taking a Shemite daughter. That is also an offense as far as God is concerned. 
Now, the Hebrew word that's used here for it displeased the Lord, and so he slew him also. The, the Hebrew word is this ruah. Just a, a couple of letters in the Hebrew. And it just got me looking, a bit just curious, really. The actual definition of this word says to spoil, literally, by breaking to pieces. And I thought, how interesting. And figuratively, figuratively to make or be good for nothing, i.e. bad physically, socially, or morally. You see, there's far more going on here than just the, the, the physical problem uh, that we have described there. There's a spiritual issue going on here. And what Satan behind the scenes is trying to engineer here is this breaking of God's plan. This breaking of this separation with the, the inhabitants of Canaan by the descendants of Shem and obviously coming down to Abraham and so on. And so God is displeased because there's this attempt to make God's plan good for nothing. To cause a physical problem that would stop the possibility of the Messiah being born, of pure stock going back to Adam, coming down, of course, through Noah, through Shem, through Abraham, and so on. And interestingly enough, it's exactly the same word that is used in Genesis chapter five, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The word that we have translated displeased here, in there, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart, the talking of man before the flood, was only evil, and that's the word, continually. The word that's translated evil there is the same word as we have displeased in this verse that we're looking at. And it's interesting that it's all to do with the thoughts of the heart, what was going on in man's heart at the time before the flood, and what was going on in the world then that led to the flood. And the same thing being attempted now. I can't overemphasize how important this is because so many get very caught up and... Uh, and uh, really question the validity of scripture when they look at verses like this that God kills people and then we find later Joshua going in and wiping out whole tribes of people and they say how can God be a God of love of course they don't understand the spiritual element of this they don't see that God is a God of love and God was going to make sure that the savior was born whatever Satan tried to do every attempt was thwarted Sometime at a great cost, like the flood, every one on the earth was wiped out, except Noah, of course, and his family. We find so many of those tribes of Canaan later destroyed. And yes, they were into all sorts of pagan practices and abhorrent sexual practices and all sorts of other things. You can read about it in history if you want to. There's lots of information that we have about what was going on in Canaan. And it was horrible, barbaric things. Even child sacrifice and many other things were going on. But it's way more than just that. It was the spiritual component that was the real problem. Well, then, verse 11, Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house, till Sheila, my son, be grown. For he said, Lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now, you see what's going on here. Obviously, Judah's a little concerned that everybody, his sons, every time his sons have a relationship with Tamar, they die. So he's a little bit concerned now about his remaining son, Sheila. And so he, he says to Tamar, look, go back to your father's house, stay there, remain a widow, wait till he's old enough. But of course, the implication here is that 
Judah had no intention of really giving his third son to Tamar. It was just a way of kind of getting rid of his daughter-in-law at this point. And then verse 12 says, and in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Shua was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend Hira, the Adullamites. Notice here we're told now he's his friend, Hira, the Adullamites. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goes up to Timnath to shear the sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her face with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath. For she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given unto him to wife. She she recognizes that, that Judah has broken his promise. And so verse 15 says, And when Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way and said, Go, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. It's been many years since they'd seen each other. They both no doubt changed. So she obviously recognizes him and hears that he's coming. But he's not expecting to see her. And she said, What wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? What will you pay me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Will thou give me a pledge till thou send it? So it's all right, you're promising to give me something, but how do I know that you're going to give me that? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Interestingly, three things thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff that is in thy hand. And he gave it her and came in unto her. And then we're told, And she conceived by him. Interestingly, the signet seems to be kind of a symbol of authority. That cord that he has, the bracelet, a symbol of affiliation, and the staff, a symbol of strength, typically. And she specifically asks for these things, knowing what she's doing. So she's pregnant. Verse 19, as she arose and went away and laid her veil from her and put on her on the garments of widowhood. So she goes back to her life as she was. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Adullamites, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. This is the kind of relationship that, that uh, Judah has with Hiram, this, this friend, this Adullamite, that he's happy to indulge in kind of this kind of skullduggery and sneaking around kind of stuff on uh, Judah's behalf. Verse 21, Then he asked the men of that place, saying, where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, there was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, let her take it to her, lest we be shamed. Notice, lest we be shamed. They're kind of in this plot thing together here. And Judah basically just says, oh, well, just let her keep the stuff. Just, just, just keep it quiet. Let's people find out. He said, I, I sent the kid and that was found or not. You know, we, we've done our bit. Judah seemed to feel very pleased with himself that he's trying to fulfill, he's fulfilled any moral obligation he had in paying this harlot as he perceives. Verse 24, and it came to pass that about three months after that it was told Judah saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, has paid the harlot. 
And also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. <laughs> Notice Judah's response. Judah said, bring her forth and let her be burnt. You know, our sins always look worse on other people, don't they? See, Judah is clearly guilty. We're going to see it played out in a moment. But we see other people do things and we think, that's terrible. We don't tend to see it in our own lives. Oswald Chambers often has made comments to the effect that God will often allow around us people that we find quite distasteful to show us what we are like before God and to remind us that we are called to be holy, that we are called to be set apart. Incredible response here on behalf of Judah, given the circumstance, given the fact that he knows what he's done. Of course, seemingly it was okay for him, but for someone else, verse 25 carries on. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man whose these are, am I with child? And she said, so discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet, the bracelets, and the staff? It's kind of one of these moments where everything goes quiet. Judah feeling rather embarrassed because he just made a public thing of this saying, let it be burnt. What she's done deserves death. And she says, okay, well, I'll tell you who made me pregnant. It was the person who these belonged to. And verse 26 says, and Judah acknowledged them and said, she's been more righteous than I because that I gave her not to Sheila, my son. And then we're told that he knew her again no more. In other words, they had no more physical relationship from this point onward. And it came to pass in the time of her travail that behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass that when she travailed, the one put out his hand and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread saying, this came out first. Of course, you've got to appreciate how important it was in that culture to understand who which child is going to be the firstborn because, of course, of the inheritance rights and everything else. So this child puts forth his hand and the cord is tied around. But then there's tussling going on and poor Tamar going through this, this dreadful labor. Because it came to pass that he drew his hand back and then his brother came out and she said, how hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore, his name was called Ferris. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zara. I just uh, kind of feel a little bit for, for Tamar in this kind of situation. Perez, because of this situation, means breach or breakthrough. Zara means rising. Not sure what you do with that, but uh, the whole issue here, again, is the impo- importance of the firstborn. It's interesting, isn't it, that as an aside, that in the previous chapter we see Judah, part of a plot to try and stop Joseph inheriting that right of the firstborn. If you remember, we talked about the coat, and one of the, the ideas behind the coat is it signified that special place, certainly with, with Jacob. And maybe he was implying that Joseph was going to be given the place of the firstborn because he loved him so much. Because, of course, he was the firstborn of Rachel, the wife that he always wanted from the start. And so the other brothers, feeling very jealous of the whole thing, end up with this plot where they try to 
initially they're going to thinking of killing him, and then they just send him off with these uh, Midianite Ishmaelite traders down to Egypt. There's a whole issue there where Judah is trying to prevent this reversal of the, the firstborn inheritance, and in, in his own family here, his own children being brought now to Tamar, exactly the same kind of reversal takes place. Kind of an irony in that. Now, we see a number of times in Scripture this idea of the, the secondborn being favored a number of times. We, we see it, of course, with Shem over Ham, Ham being born first. We see it, of course, with Isaac over Ishmael. Ishmael was born to Abraham first and then Isaac. But, of course, it's Isaac that the one that is counted by God. With Jacob himself over Esau, we've seen that already. We're seeing it here with Perez over Zerah. With Ephraim over Manasseh, we'll see that as we come towards the end of the book of Genesis. With Moses over Aaron. Of course, with Jesus over Adam. This is lovely model all the way through Scripture where the one that was born second takes the place of the firstborn. And aren't we glad that Jesus has taken that place? That that which was corrupted and all went wrong with Adam is rectified, uh, restored, redeemed through Jesus. Verse 18, we carry on now. These are the generations of Pharaohs. Pharaohs begat Hezron. Hezron begat Ram. And Ram begat Aminadab. Aminadab begat Nashon. And Nashon begat Salmon. Salmon begat Boaz. Names we're familiar with now. Boaz begat Obed. Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. So we're just given this genealogy. Now this is from the book of Ruth. Why am I telling you this? Well, because we see this lineage come down and we see how important this line is as it comes down to David. And of course, from here, we know the rest of history, how all of this comes down to Jesus. How David's descendants, all the way back from, this is in... um, You've got the, both Luke and the Matthew's genealogies there. Uh, Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew goes back to Abraham. But they all bring this down through this family line, as we've just been looking at there, ultimately to David, and then, of course, from David all the way down to Jesus. Now, while we're talking briefly of the book of Ruth, there's another interesting thing that we need to highlight here, because when Ruth and Boaz have their child, Obed, it's really interesting. Obed, his name means worship. And there's a lovely model in all of these things in the book of Ruth. And Ruth is just full of these spiritual models that, that play out the rest of history and so on. But there's this statement made in verse 12. And let thy house, this is said to, to Ruth regarding the child that's just been born to her, to, to, of, of Obed. Let thy house be like the house of Pharez, whom Tamar... Bear unto Judah of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this woman. I mean, this is a bizarre thing to say because you've got to appreciate that the whole situation that led to Pharisee's birth was pretty unsavory, wasn't it? Of course, Judah taking Tamar and, of course, Pharisee and his brother being born out of wedlock. He's an illegitimate child and so on. Very strange blessing. Now, according to the the Torah, a child that was born out of wedlock was ceremonially defiled. 
and his descendants couldn't enter the congregation of the Lord up to the 10th generation. The 10th generation, they would be allowed to re-enter the congregation of the Lord. And this is, again, fascinating, because we look at that list again, and you realize, you get down to the 10th generation, and who is it? It's David. There's a hint, even in this, that God has something very special planned for that 10th generation down from Perez, from this prophecy that we have in verse 12 of uh, the book of Ruth, chapter 4. And of course, David is the one that God had already ordained to sit on the throne. Now, there's something else I just want to share with you. I'm sure you're familiar, we've talked a number of times about the codes that we find in Scripture, these equidistant letter sequences, where typically you take one letter, you count forward a series of numbers, what a defined number, you come to another letter, you count forward some more letters, the same number gap, and you come to another letter, and they make up words. And there's a there's a lot of um, conjecture around some of these things, but there's no doubt that some of this does exist within Scripture, and that God has clearly worked this into the text in numerous places. Now, one of the interesting places that we find this is the chapter we're looking at this morning, Genesis chapter 38. Because we go to Genesis chapter 38, what we see there, that's the, the text in Hebrew. Hebrew reads from right to left, all nations of the world, all the languages of the world flow towards Jerusalem. I'm sure you've heard that before, but it's fascinating. If we take the letters that you see highlighted there, we have the name Boaz. And that's at 49 letter intervals. Okay, so you take the first bets in the, in the Hebrew, uh, and then the Ayan, and then the, the equivalent of what would be our Z. Uh, you have the, the word, the name Boaz in Genesis 38 in the text. Now that statistically will probably occur by chance. We're only talking about three letters, so no big deal on that. However, we then find interspersed or going over in, in this same section of letters, the name Ruth also. Now that, from a probability point of view, becomes far less likely. And the fact that they kind of cross over each other and the fact that Ruth and Boaz were married is also very interesting. But it doesn't just stop there. Because a little later in the chapter, in Genesis 38, bear in mind this is Genesis 38, we then have the name Obed recorded. And all of these are at 49 letter intervals, these letters that make up these names. Now that's really quite fascinating, but it carries on because a little later then we have the name Yishai, or the name that we would have, Jesse. And then finally you have David. And this is in Genesis chapter 38. We've got the names Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, and David in chronological order in Genesis 38 which is a chapter that really begins this lineage that comes down through to David. Again, that's just absolutely breathtaking. If you think, stop and think, the chance of that happening, happening by chance is, well, it's impossible. And yet it's there. And you see God's fingerprints, God's design throughout Scripture once again. Okay. Let's uh, draw to a close there this morning. Um, next week, we're going to carry on looking at the life of Joseph. And in contrast to the failure of Judah, we're going to look at the faithfulness of Joseph. You know, with Judah, we see, of course, this following after, seeking after the things of this world. 
laying aside things that he'd been taught and been told, thinking that it was okay, it didn't matter. Well, it did matter, and God had to bring Judah back in line in a very sharp way. Two of his sons dying. With Joseph, of course, we're going to see how God brings incredible blessing, even through the tragedies and the difficulties Joseph goes through because of this obedience. Let's uh, bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for your love for us, ensuring that Jesus would be born. Lord, as your word spoke in Genesis 3, that it would be the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. And Father, we thank you that the second Adam was chosen, was preferred over the, the first Adam, that he is the one that has made reconciliation with the Father. Father, we thank you that there is a way because of Jesus. We thank you, Father, for these lessons. Thank you, Father, that we're reminded in this chapter to not intermarry with the things of this world. Lord, it will just bring problems. It will bring heartache and difficulties that we weren't prepared for. Because, Lord, you didn't design us to intermarry with the systems and the things of this world, which are brought about by the Father of lies. Father, help us to follow you faithfully and obediently, to keep our eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May God richly bless you as you go through this week walking with him. Amen.